Welcome to Product Voices, a podcast where we share valuable insights and useful resources to help us all be great in product management. Visit the show's website to access the resources discussed on the show, find more information on our fabulous guests, or to submit your product management question to be answered on our special Q&A episodes. That's all at productvoices.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Now, here's our host, J.J. Rory, CEO of Great Product Management. Hello and welcome to Product Voices. I am really honored and excited about today's episode. I've got Melissa Perry and Denise Tillis with me to discuss their new book, Product Operations, How Successful Companies Build Better Products at Scale. Melissa is, of course, the author of Escaping the Build Trap. She's the CEO of Products Lab. She's a world-renowned teacher, advisor, thought leader in product management. Denise is a product consultant who supports companies like Bloomberg, ATB Financial, DaVita. She works with organizations all over the world from high startups to Fortune 50 companies, helping them with their product organizations. Melissa, Denise, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Hey. So I love the book. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about it, but let's just set the stage. We hear a lot about product operations these days, but there are some differing understandings of what it is. So what is product operations and why is it important for product teams and product organizations? Melissa, I'll throw that question to you. Yeah, uh, product operations is really the enablement function of product management. Uh, its role there is to help make the product management function better. It's really about getting people the right data and insights so that they can make good strategic decisions. It's also about getting them, uh, getting getting everybody aligned for what product management does and how they fit into the product development lifecycle. So it's really important for organizations as they start scaling because what happens is, you know, you're you start off as like a five person startup. You could turn around and talk to anybody and figure out what you need to know. But as you start scaling, you get more people, you get more complexity in your products, you get um, a lot more customers, you have a lot more ideas coming in, and the product management team starts to grow as well. And the organization starts to lose track of, you know, what's happening, what's coming up, how do I actually work with product management? How do I make sure that I'm on top of my product strategy and I can monitor it and make sure we're going in the same directions? How do I uh, make sure there's transparency in the organization about what's being prioritized and what's being worked on? Um, and how do I make sure that as we add more and more departments, we understand how everybody comes together to create great products? So that's why we have product operations. It's really to help enable product teams at scale and make sure that we can create successful strategies. So tell me kind of... I, I ask this all authors, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. But why did you why did you guys write the book? Like, why now? Like, what was the 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 kind of impetus to say we need a book on product operations right now? Denise, what, what, where were where were your heads when you started to write this, and why you needed it? Yeah, that was kind of my nutty idea. Uh, what was it? 2021, Melissa. I'm like, I slapped. I'm like, am I bananas? What do you think about this? Would you do this? What do you think? And she was crazy too and said yes. But you know, the it really came about because you know, we advised so many companies when we worked together at Products Labs, and we we're kind of saying the same things over and over. And I thought, wouldn't this be great to have a resource, not only for people that are in the trenches as product managers, but also for the people that they're trying to convince and persuade. So um that's sort of where it was born. Melissa, did you have something to add to that? 
Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, hi, Denise really wanted to write this book. And um, I definitely think it, it was needed. But I was having a little PTSD from the first book I wrote. Um, so I told her I was like, I'm only going to do this if you're doing it with me. Like, I, I'm not writing a book on my own right now. And She was like, No, I'm totally in this. So I was like, Okay. And I have to say it was much better to have a partner <laughs> the second time around to do this. And I'm really glad we wrote it. Because mm-hmm. I think in 2021, when we were first approaching it, like, product operations was being talked about. Definitely people out there that we knew doing product operations for a long time. But now, you know, two years later, uh, we're looking around, there's a lot more product operations like this really just grew over the last two years. um, And it's been growing, and I think it's going to continue to explode. So it felt like, let's get, you know, let's get ahead of this and make sure that we have um, an opinion and a way to help people who are trying to actually put this into place. Right. And I think it was about too about sharing the framework. And Melissa came up with this about the three pillars of product operations and whether or not you adhere to that, you know, really um, tightly or take pieces of it. It's just really a way to think about how to structure the enablement around the product folks. That was going to be my next question was, you know, tell us about each of the pillars. um, I I think that's um, a, a big important part of the book. And that's how people can get started. So tell us about these three pillars. So the first one's uh, business and data insights. So really the, the quantitative inputs that product managers need. The second one is customer and market insights, right? The qualitative. And the third is really around the product operating model process and practices. And that's where I feel like it gets a little controversial with people, whether they're pro or, or con product operations. Okay, so let's let's go through each one of those. I want to I want to hear more. I want to I want to learn more why they're so important in the context around them. So let's start with the business and data insights. Tell me tell me more about that. Um, the business and data insights is really about trying to get information out of our current systems on what the business is doing and looking at it in a product lens. Um, I'm on a lot of boards and I sit through these board meetings um, and I look at what executives review as financials and we look at things like recurring ARR. Um, air our top five customers, we look at our retention. Um, and what we were looking at when we started to create product strategies, Denise and I, when we were doing this at Products Labs, is that a lot of people weren't taking these and looking at them in a way that helped product. So we would typically go in there, try to get all this information out of systems, but then start to look at it in ways that could be helpful to product people, especially chief product officers. And we would, um, you know, start to do cohort analysis, like ARR by cohorts, right, of personas or size of contracts or um, ARR by the people who use certain different types of products, like uh, the cost per product. So we started to really put like a business lens on top of information that can help drive product decisions. And this helps inform product strategy. So we would go in and we teach people about how to do this, what kind of information you should be looking at so that you can form a a decision about what to do with your product strategy. So business data and insights is about really harnessing the things that we do have internally. And there's a lot of information we have internally and starting to look at them in a product management way to make sure that we're managing and working towards our outcomes. So you could pull information out of like your financial systems, which is a no brainer after what I just talked about. Um, but it's also getting information out of like sales systems. Um, what are, how many, you know, what's our close rate and how does that affect like, uh, what we're actually building with product? It's about getting information out of systems, uh, like our, uh, like looking at product development systems, right? Like plugging in our JIRA and starting to look at what we're developing and how we're going, you know, what we're, what we're working towards there and what kind of stats we have on our development. 
uh, is about getting things out of HR systems and understanding how many people we have staffed around products. And these insights, what they do is they should be helping leaders make product strategy decisions, but also teams and product managers themselves monitor their uh, product strategies, monitor their features that they put out there in the world, especially with things like product usage and, and all those wonderful stuff that we talk about every day with product analytics, but using that to create dashboards, um, have transparency into how things are performing and be able to report back on that and tie it back to the business metrics. So that's really what that piece is about. It's not so much about going out um, into the world externally to learn this information. It's about keeping it internal, trying to pull stuff out, and then make sense of that to inform product strategy. That's great. Now, do you, do you when you're um, helping companies or seeing companies implement product operations or optimize if, they, if they've had it, um, and specifically around business and data insights, the data that they have, we all know that organizations have a ton of data and they don't always use it in the right way, as mm-hmm. you said. And, and I love that, that you, you kind of um, couch it in the, the context of product because that's, that's what's missing very often. But do you also see that um, uh, sometimes product, the product teams are not necessarily uh, don't necessarily have the financial acumen uh, to you know to start to use these. Is that part of the process of making sure that that you know the teams are able to use this data once you actually have it? That's a big piece of it too. Is not only you know making sure that it's it's either existing or getting it implemented, but then once you have all the data, what do they do with it? How do you make sure they understand how to actually apply that? And I would say across the board, there's typically some pretty significant deficits in terms of applying the financials. So I was excited when uh, Gift Constable, right? Gift had, yep. yep. He just uh, introduced a financial acumen class for PMs and I want to take it. I think, I think it's a long underserved um, need. So I think that will make a big difference. Yeah. The, uh, the, the financial acumen thing is interesting because I feel like one of the the biggest issues I hear from leaders is that their product managers are not, it's funny because it's either one or the other. It's like my product na- managers are not business-minded at all, or they have like all the business skills and zero of the technology skills. <laughs> but like more often than not, I hear my product managers are not business-minded, right? They're they're very into their features and they talk about customer research and all this stuff, but I never hear about what they're going to produce for the business. And what happens there is that product managers have a really hard time trying to connect what they're doing with teams all the way back up to how that uh, pushes the business forward. And more often than not, that's because the strategy is not deployed well. It's because we don't have really good defined um, strategic intents, which is what I call them at the business level. We don't have well-defined uh, product strategy. And then the teams are basically coming up with, what can we do to like improve adoption? Or what can we do to improve usage of this feature? But there's no guiding light of what that should be doing for the business. and what we see in a lot of organizations and what Denise and I saw when we would come in and help, especially growth stage companies, um, is that they didn't have the information together or in a, in a good usable spot to be able to drill into what are the problems that we need to solve at that business level, at that focus level, at the strategic intent level, uh, to be able to direct the product teams and focus the product teams. And that is a big piece of why we think that for growth stage companies, you should be starting with business data and insights because if you are not able to track how your products are performing in the way that we just talked about with you know, cohort analysis and all this different stuff, you can't make really fast, rapid strategic decisions. And that is the whole characterization of growth stage companies is like you need to be able to 
react very quickly to be able to keep growing. So it's relevant for really large companies as well, um, but super critical, we think, for growth stage companies. And it should be helping you get a picture of how your company is performing on those different levels. And I think the kicker about business data and insights is that you should automate it, right? So what Denise and I propose in the book is that if you do this manually, which you have to do first, you have to gather all this information out of different systems, put it into different graphs and different charts to be able to look at it and say, hey, now I have some insights and in how things are performing. And every story looks a little bit different depending on your company and how your business models work. Um, but then the real power that comes from this pillar of product operations is then automating it in something like a Tableau or a you know a Looker or any kind of um, business intelligence tool where you can put all your data in there and be able to query it on top of it and make all these different cuts of data to view it as a product manager or a product leader. And that's what really gives this pillar a lot of power is that you don't have to go to a data analyst every single time you have a question and wait for them to query SQL, um, you know, or I had to like learn MongoDB just to pull any information out of um, a database when I was a product manager. That's not a good use of time for product manager skills. So it's like, yes, they need to be able to connect it back to the financials. But when they spend all their time just trying to get data out of systems, a lot of times they can't spend that time thinking about how this all connects up and doing that really hard work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think we've all seen that in terms of product managers spending their time on that, grabbing that data. So I can see that business and data insights pillar being really foundational to the to the whole thing, right? Um, but let's let's talk about the second one. Let's talk about customer market insights. Um, Denise, tell me tell me a little bit more about that. Why is that so important? Um in product operations? Yeah, well, it's sort of the yin to the yang, right, of business and data insights, right? So you have the quantitative and the hard numbers that the numbers don't lie. And then you want to understand the more, you know, qualitative, the more anecdotal, really understanding from the user perspective, how they should be applying the insights and what the problems are directly. So we talk about um, creating toolkits in terms of user research or discovery, um, experimentation. And then also as you're gaining these insights, most of them sit on people's, you know, computer desktops, right? So how do you aggregate all of it and put it into a system that is really accessible for everybody and having all of these powerful insights? So it sounds lofty, it sounds tough, but it can be really done in a scrappy way. So we talk about that in the book. And we've got a really great case study with Fidelity about what that looks like at a massive scale. But I think there's some really good insights to pull out and actions, actionable moments that could work for folks that are like a team of one. So um, I feel like I teach a, a masterclass for product uh, products labs on product operations. And at the beginning of the course, you know, where do you feel like, you know, what product operations really is or where your biggest deficit is? This is the one they they pay the least attention to. But it's so important. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think that, but. That, that's interesting. So let me let me ask you a question. Um, uh, and, and either one of you can can chime in here. But but I see a lot of confusion on um, it, who owns the customer and customer insights in when you've got a product ops group and a 
course, a product management group? And, you know, do you just outsource all customer insights into the product ops group? And, you know, that's, that could be a little, uh, a little scary. T- tell me your thoughts on that. What's, what's, how does that work best when you've got um, customer in, in market insights as a key pillar in your product operations, um, you know, practice, if you will, or group, but you still want to make sure those product managers are keeping their finger on the pulse of that, that insight. So the, the whole thing about the product ops, uh, you know, the customer research and market insights thing is that product ops isn't doing the research. Like they don't do any customer research here. What they're doing instead is instrumenting the ability to do research, creating the infrastructure to make sure that research can be repeatable so that a product manager doesn't spend 50 hours just recruiting 10 participants, right? And then going to do user research because those types of time sinks make it less repeatable. So we're not just like saying, oh, product ops group, like now your user researchers go do user research. It's more like this group is helping set up the infrastructure so that people can do good research. And they're building tools and like the, uh, like Denise said, toolkits. And um, they're figuring out how do we, uh, you know, how do we get users to opt into research? So I'll give you a great example. When I was at Athena Health, um, Jen Cardella, who's now at Fidelity, who did our, um, who we did our case study on there on her research ops group, she uh, implemented the same type of thing at Athena Health. And we had 5,000 people and we had uh, a bunch of teams going back to the same hospital to ask them questions. And we found out that like 90% of our research was coming from one hospital. We said, okay, like why, you know, out of the 350 product managers, are you bombarding these poor people who are now tired of talking to you? And two, you know, we can't base all of our research off one hospital. Like we have to actually go out and talk to a variety of people. And they said, they're the only ones who answer us. And we know that they'll say yes. So everybody piled on because they knew they would say yes. Right. And they were tired of getting told no every time they try to reach out to somebody. So Jen created the system where she actually contacted all the customers and asked them, would you be, would you like to opt into research? So they put a nice hard sell on it where they were like, you get to be at the forefront of what we're building. And like, we need your expertise. And like, she really sold it well and gave them options on how often they wanted to do research with us, what type of research they agreed to do. Um, And uh, what we did is we put them all in a database I said, here's the people who opted in, here's how often they want to be contacted, and here's the type of research that you can do. And then we classified them by different personas or other relevant information that the product managers would need. And then when a product manager needed to do research, they would go into that database, find relevant people, contact them knowing that they were being expected to be contacted. They also had their account manager on there so that they could call the account manager and be like, hey, everything like kosher with these people, like everything's good. Nobody's like upset or, you know, about to churn. And the account managers were not allowed to just block everything willy-nilly. And we made that agreement with them too. But we said, if something is really bad and this is a sensitive subject, like we won't do research with them, right? We had that open dialogue with them. We made sure that it was okay. And that was awesome because we were able to reach all different types of people after that. It did not take 30 days to recruit five participants. People could email them. They expected it. Um, And then they also built this great toolkit of all these different types of way to do research where they train people on interviews and they had um, good survey tools for people to use and they had good prototyping tools that people could use. And there was a nice toolkit for everybody to go in and actually grab those things and be able to do it. So their team wasn't responsible for doing the user research themselves. We did have a whole team of user researchers who would go out and do user research depending on what was needed, but this team was separate. This team was all about just the operations and the infrastructure needed to do good research. And the user researchers 
used it as well, right? Like this wasn't just for product managers. It was for anybody who was conducting user research to be able to uh, put their information into those systems, access customers, and then make sure that they could go and see other people's insights uh, so we weren't reinventing the wheel 10 times. It's a great example. And it's 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 about making it easier for those folks to go out and get that or conduct that research. Because, um, you know, uh, I, I, the example of, <laughs> you know, always going to the same hospital, that's, you know, if you, you take the easiest route, right? And, and that's just human nature. So mm-hmm. love that, love that. Um, and then I, I love, one of the things I love about the book is, is all of the case studies. Um, and, and you can really see um, and see real life stories of, of, you know, the challenges that are real and then how, how they overcame those. That, that was super important to us. If we can pause on that for a sec, because um, as Melissa and I were talking about how we wanted to structure the book and what kind of information it would have, it was really important to us to make sure we had realistic advice, real case studies, and made people feel empowered and not in, in, inferior. Um, so I've heard that from folks reading some books that they felt like, wow, this is an ideal I could never reach. And we wanted to make this seem as attainable and practical as possible. So I hope I hope that we did that. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I got out of the book, which I thought was was great, because I, I totally agree that so many, you know, it's so it's so um, easy to become intimidated by, you know, this, this, you know, pinnacle of, of, you know, uh, exactly. And and it's like, Oh, we don't even know where to start because we're so far behind. Well, you know, when you can, when you see real examples that they did accomplish something, but they also, you know, took it step by step or they had the same challenges. It's, it's really important, I think for, for leaders and for teams to, to see that you can still make some some differences. So uh, you definitely accomplished your goal of, of, you know, using that and having some practical examples in there Um, came across that way for sure as a reader. Um, So let's, let's um, dig into the last, uh, the the last uh, pillar. um, And then we'll go from there because I've got lots of other questions for you, but process and practice. Tell me a little bit more about that pillar, why that's important in context of, uh, you know, product, product ops being that third pillar. Yeah. So, um, as we talk about it in the book, it's really about helping people stop talking about the work and actually getting to the work. And this was a consistent theme with clients that Melissa and I had together and then separately as well that, you know, especially with go-to-market, that seems to be an acute pain point, right? So one client that we had, you know, huge company, but in 12 different product verticals and the sales team had to learn how to work on go-to-market differently with every single vertical. And can we just have one way to work? And if we build the products, but they can't get sold, what's the point, right? So how do we make it easier for everyone to work with us? And I think it's about just taking out those questions. And, you know, a number of companies that I work with, folks don't feel like they're getting bossed around. They just want to just tell me how to do it and I'll get it done. And I think a lot of people just want to understand, like, here's the way we're working. You can adapt it, you can use it, but at least have a guideline, I think a, makes makes it a lot easier for product managers to do the strategic work and not thinking about like, should the roadmap be in PowerPoint? Should it be in Excel? Do we need a tool? Just taking out some of that type of, of work that they don't necessarily need to be doing. And it's probably not you know, the, the highest of importance either. So getting to that consistency, I think is really important. You know, it's interesting because I think at least when, when product ops started to get the visibility, um, you know, or more, more visibility over the last few years, one of the critiques was that, you know, it's, it's 
going to overprocess us, right? It's going to going to throw too much right. bureaucracy in there. And um, I think the the companies that that do it right, you know, they use that uh, consistency, right? They use the process just enough to make you know to make you not have to think about the silly stuff and and waste cycles on that. I think I think that's that's kind of what you're 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 teaching, um, you know, and showing companies how to do, right? Like use use process up to the exactly. point where. It, it adds to efficiency and not takes away from everything else. Exactly. And it's not a set it and forget it type of thing either. Shintaro Matsui, who is from Amplitude, and we also have a case study with him, he does a quarterly assessment, a hero, heuristic, is this working for us? And so all of the stakeholders and the product managers, like, what do we think about the newsletter? You know, maybe it's a lot of work for the product managers, but the sales team loves it, right? So what's working, what isn't working. So if you're constantly looking and deprecating what isn't working, it's a, it's a product really, right? So it has to have attention and what can be automated and, you know, where can you apply these types of efforts to maybe more higher value? That's important. Definitely. So Melissa, I think you mentioned this earlier about how um, when you're working with growth stage companies, you often advise them to start um, kind of digging into and improving that business and data insights pillar. Um, do you have, is that kind of a standard rule across the board or do you, do you, you know, advise companies to start with one or the other of these pillars or just kind of take it as, as the, the company's, um, you know, their unique situation dictates? I think it depends more on like where the company's at and what's the most important piece. Um, we just tend to see that growth stage companies do start with business data and insights. And I have to say, I'm like slightly biased because every company I've worked that with that is growth stage, just by the nature of like what I do, usually has trouble setting product strategy. So I'm coming in to help them mm -hmm. set product strategy. And that's because they don't have those insights at their fingertips. And once they know what it is, they're like, oh, oh my God, like, how do we not have this? This is, makes so much more sense on why we couldn't set product strategy before. Nobody knew to look at this stuff, right? And that's yeah. that's usually a prerequisite for, you know, doing strategy. And I'm, I'm working with one company right now to do the same thing. And we're going out and getting the data. And it worked really well because we have a data person who was just hired who is re-instrumenting everything, um, putting it into Looker you know, making it set up. So now I get to work with him on, hey, here's the type of things that we're going to need to see all the time so we can keep refreshing that strategy. So it works very well, I think, for growth stage companies to start there. But that doesn't mean that enterprises can start there either. It doesn't mean that um, anybody else could start there if their biggest issue is getting insights into how their product is performing. A lot of times for enterprises, though, they have more of an issue of just understanding the work that's going on. So that's more like, uh, hey, we have a bunch of tickets in JIRA. And I don't know what they're going to, right? Like, like we got <laughs> 5 million tickets in JIRA. We've got 5,000 developers across this company. We've got 50,000 developers at some of the larger companies I work with. Uh, <laughs> what are they doing, right? Like, what are they working on? How does that actually bubble up? And there's no real good system for tracking how those things roll into roadmaps and having a good portfolio view of what all those roadmaps are across the company and making sure that they're aligned and that they're working towards uh, the right direction. And that is where a lot of enterprises start to um, start to do product ops is just trying to get those transparency into what's happening right now, what is the work that's happening now. And to me, that's not a bad place to start either if any company is having trouble with that. And I think there's a balance. And what we talk about in the book that you'll see too with like the... Uh, and I'm sure you've seen it already, JJ. It's like, uh, you know, 
we talk about the story of the company that's going through and sometimes they do a little bit in each pillar and they have to drop they say that's good enough for now right like we we accomplish what we need in this one pillar let's start on this other one because that's a higher priority at the moment and i think that's how people will naturally gravitate their way into product operations it doesn't have to be um an all or nothing play and what also we should acknowledge is that there are maybe teams out there that are doing some of the work that we're describing in product operations today and that's okay like we're not saying go replace those teams or you know, stop what they're doing. We have to call it product ops and like restructure this. Like, no, uh, it's just that these are what product managers need to help, you know, operationalize their work and be able to do their work. And if you don't have them, like get them, product operations is a nice home for them to live in. But let's say you have like a great data team that reports into like a chief data officer goes up to, you know, the CEO and that team is fantastic at getting data into Looker and, they are doing all the cuts that we're talking about. They're great great at monitoring dashboards. They are readily accessible to the product team to answer questions. And you don't have problems with the business data and insights because you've been doing that. Like, don't start there. Don't restructure into product operations as we're calling it. Like, leave that team alone um, <laughs> and make sure that it's like well set up for the product managers and then like move on to something else. So we're not trying to like replace uh, functions that exist that are working very well. We're just trying to help people understand what are all the different components uh, that are needed to to do good work as a product manager. That's a really good segue, actually, to my next thought or next question for for you both. Um, kind of not not reinventing the wheel or every wheel, if a wheel doesn't need to be reinvented, right? Um, is is one way to probably if you're a, a leader trying to you know really implement a product operations uh, practice in an organization to get buy-in right to, to, to say well look we're not trying to you know recreate everything here we've we actually do this part really well but let's start somewhere else so uh, I guess the question is and, and Denise you can take this if you want is just like how do you get buy-in how does a product leader start to for for folks who who don't have product operations even if they have some of the you know um you know the the practices around the organization if they don't really have product operations yet how do you get buy in how do you start that that communication and that process to to you know help the organization implement product ops right i mean sometimes it may be coming out of a failed launch um so the go to market connectivity was that a, a mismatch um, and as people are pointing fingers, as opposed to blaming, it's like, well, what if it looked like this? What if we could do that? So sometimes it's out of things that have, um, you know, not necessarily gone well. Uh, Christina Guaru from Pendo was talking about that on another podcast that product operations there had been born at a really rough launch. So I've seen that a few times. Um, and also, I think part of the reason we shared these case studies was to show what it can look like at other companies. Because when I've been working with certain uh, large, large enterprises, like, well, who else is doing it? Who else is? So this actually shows you and puts a name to it, actually gives examples of how it's helped companies scale. So for example, at um, Uber and then at Stripe, uh, Blake Samick, who started product operations at both um, organizations, um, you know, talked about how the company was in scale-up phase and then really had this burst of growth and everybody's kind of running every which way. And that's where systems start to break. Communication starts to break down. And that's where, at least initially with Uber that he started it at, um, that's where it came from. 
of what does it look like to put these things back together and, and build a framework to actually scale this. So usually it's out of out of a challenge, but it could be you know out of like this could be a wonderful thing. So I've seen it start in both ways, but typically more out of a challenge that's happened or an issue. Yeah. And then, and then paint, kind of paint the picture of what it could, what we could be uh, to, to avoid those kinds of challenges. Yeah, exactly. Team of one. And then what does that look like to be possibly a team of several if you need that? Yeah. Are there any indicators um, or, you know, uh, kind of, kind of growth measures or, or metrics or anything else that, that, show us when product ops is needed? Is it always needed um, in companies or or are there certain parts um, in their evolution and their maturity, um, certain challenges that they identify? Any any kind of triggers out there that that makes a leadership team say, you know what, we probably should look at product ops. We'll go to market for sure. That seems to be a, a challenge in a lot of places. I think too, it like depends on size. Like if you're a tiny company, you don't, you don't need product ops. Like I had somebody ask, like, do I need... I have one product manager, somebody on LinkedIn just asked this today. I have one product manager. We're about to hire another. Should I hire a product marketer next or a product ops person? And I was like, you don't need product ops with two product managers. Like that's, you know, you can turn to each other and yeah. have a conversation. Yeah. Um, so it's when you're really small, it's not going to help you, but you can start to lay the foundation, especially with data, right? Um, as you think about scaling and that that's good hygiene stuff. So I'd say there isn't a hard and fast rule about like how many product managers you have to have uh, to start product ops, but it's typically when you've got enough product managers where you're like, as a product leader, you're looking around, you're like, what is everybody working on? Do I have a good, you know, is everybody following a similar type of process? Are we like spending a lot of time just working off the side of our desk to like put out fires? Um, and fires on like, what templates do we use for this? Or how do we um, structure that? Or how do I get data? Or it's like, like for me, when I was at a startup, learning MongoDB so I could get information out of a database, like that was a good signal that we needed product ops at that point, right? Like we needed to do something about this. Uh, that's one like good sign is just that it feels like you're scaling fast. You have plans to hire a lot more people um, in the future. Your team is going to keep growing. And you know that if you're going to add more people, it's going to become unsustainable. Like it's going to be much harder for you to get a handle of what's going on. That's a good, that's a good rule of thumb there. And then I like what Denise said. I think it's, I think it's not just product, uh, product marketing or like go to market, but it's also when you start to have uh, defined different departments, right. That are growing as well. So if you've got a large sales team, a large marketing team, and then it's like, Oh, let's hire product marketers too. Right. Now we're adding like in more complexity. Oh, we need customer support as well. Like let's, let's like grow that team. Now we've got a bunch of different people that need to plug into the product development process. And they're curious about how it works and, you know, how they get their ideas from customers to us. Like that's a good sign that these are types of things that we need to be thinking about as well. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So we've talked a lot about how to how to implement, how to get it started in an organization, um, which I think probably a majority of of organizations are are in that you know that level of of uh, maturity, if you will, or immaturity um, because it's somewhat of a new concept. But there's enough um, organizations out there that have implemented product ops. Um, so what advice do you give to them? Where they've they've started the process, they've put some people in place, they've they've uh, worked on some of these pillars, um, but it's not quite optimized yet. Like, how do you go into an organization and help them um, optimize their product ops as opposed to start it from 
from scratch? Are there common mistakes that you see um, or any kind of common advice that you end up giving to these organizations as they continue to grow their product ops group? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I advised a financial company year before last, and they were one of the earlier companies to start with a product ops team. And they had gone from embedded to shared service to embedded to shared service. And so they've gone through a few cycles already with that, which was interesting. Um, but they wanted to take a moment and say, what are we doing right? What are, what are other folks in the industry doing? So um, I really took a maturity assessment in terms of thinking of those pillars, right? And and sort of benchmarking against what good looks like and sort of what the highest level and highest value um, activities are within those pillars. So I also see that typically companies, as they're maturing, they're definitely going to you know, sort of index over index more in certain areas because it has been a problem, but they may tend to sort of keep applying that sort of resource heavy uh, force there. So sometimes it's about pulling back and like, oh, all right, we've got data set up. Maybe we really need to be thinking about more of the, the qualitative side. So I think that may be a little bit of, of a myopic view of, of what the needs are. So sometimes it helps to pull back. Yeah. Yeah. And just get a bigger picture. Cause again, right. sometimes we, we as humans do what we're comfortable with. So if we're really comfortable in one of these pillars, we may double down on it as opposed to getting a, a, a breadth of, of, um, you know, um, operations there. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess my final question, um, is, uh, you know, other than going out and definitely reading the book, um, what final words of, of wisdom do you have for organizations and product teams who want to, um, you know, succeed in product operations? I think my biggest thing that I want organizations to understand is that product operations isn't a replacement for poor product management skills, right? And this is not going to fill the gap of having a lot of people who are inexperienced, both in leadership levels or in, um, you know, like in any levels, right? Uh, to do this, it's about really optimizing our ways of working and making sure that skilled product managers are focusing on what we hired them to do, which is make product decisions, right? Make really good product decisions. And that's the piece that we want them to remember. One of the folks that we interviewed, um, Srinivas, he uh, started product operations at Calendly. He's moved on since then, but I love what he says. He says it's really product operations is about increasing the speed and quality of decision-making. And that's kind of a nice way to sum up the three pillars. But I guess my advice would be um, start somewhere. Don't feel like you've got to start across all three. In fact, don't pick your biggest and highest need and where you see the most value possibly out of out of serving it and start from there. That's great advice. Um, and and certainly, again, you know, the, the book is an amazing primer and a really great resource to to get started and, you know, to to read your advice and, and insights and frameworks and to read those case studies and, you know, see what others have done and, you know, uh, uh, amend what they've done to your environment. But I think it's a, a really, really great resource for folks. So um, thank you all for putting it out in the world. It will be very valuable to, to everyone. So uh, Melissa Perry, Denise Tillis, thank you so much uh, for joining me. It's been a fabulous conversation and I've enjoyed learning more about product operations. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you all for joining us on Product Voices. Hope to see you on the next episode. 
Thank you for listening to Product Voices, hosted by J.J. Rory. To find more information on our guests, resources discussed during the episode, or to submit a question for our Q&A episodes, visit the show's website, productvoices.com, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. 